0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power
1: to do? Mobile
0: banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE.
1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hi, my name is Nathan Hobson, and I'm a host for the New Books in Food podcast, a member of the New Books Network. Today, I'll be talking with Dr. Zach Froelich about his book, From Label to Table, Regulating Food in America in the Information Age, which is out from the University of California Press in 2023. From Label to Table is a biography of the Nutrition Facts label that adorns millions of food products and has become an integral part of the food and information landscape in the United States. The story that Froelich tells unfolds in part as an institutional history of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, which is the agency responsible for the label. And it uses the agency as a way to understand the ideological and policy debates about responsibility for communicating scientific information to the public, from regulation and gatekeeping to information brokering and nudging. From Label to Table is the story of how the American contemporary food information environment emerged out of the history of transformation from paternalism to informationism. OK, Dr. Frolick uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for uh, joining us. And uh, also, sorry about the little little. Uh, we had a little trouble with daylight saving figuring out uh, the scheduling here between the, uh, the US and Europe. I appreciate your patience with that. Um, so we're going to be talking today uh, about your book uh, From Label to Table, which is a, a dual history uh, of food labeling um, and the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, in the United States. Um, and you call it a biography of the food label, which is a really sort of compelling way to to to, to phrase that. Um, and you show how uh, the regulatory role and the communication strategies of the FDA have changed over time. So, how did you get interested in this project?
1: Yeah, well, thank you for having me on here, and um, also you can just call me Zach. So, I actually got interested in this project because of a personal reason. Uh, years ago, I had a friend visiting from Europe, and she was in my kitchen looking at food products and she saw a package and she pointed at the nutrition facts label and said, this is so American. Um, and, you know, we didn't talk about it much at the time, but I knew exactly what, what she meant. I think there were kind of two aspects of it. One is, it seemed really, um, scientistic, uh, Europeans always laugh at kind of the diet, diet fad that Americans have. And a lot of them are about the latest science and, you know, eat this food for that reason and this health claim. And you know Europeans also have their diet fads, but are you know see themselves as having a more rooted food culture. And so um, there was a little bit of that kind of science obsessed American aspect of it, but also it was the kind of black box. And we're, we're also infamous in Europe for being legalistic, and they imagine us as very light, litigious. Um, you know, you know, they, you, we put a label on the banana saying "Be careful not to slip on this" kind of thing. And so there's this sort of way in which I think. Um, she was responding to both of those aspects. And so after that conversation, I just started thinking, I was like, you know, it'd be interesting to figure out the history about this nutrition facts label. And when I started working on that paper very quickly, I realized, okay, there's actually a much more interesting, longer backstory that the nutrition facts label gets introduced in the 1990s, but the FDA, the food and drug administration has been worrying about these issues for decades. And, um, So part of it was driven by that kind of interest in the nutrition facts label. The other thing that happened was I was uh, trying to learn about food law and I was a student at MIT and, you know, not far away was Harvard and it has this law school. So I was like, I will audit a food law class at Harvard. And it was taught by Peter Barton Hutt, who anyone in food law knows is one of these giants in the field. And... And taking his class, I met with him one-on-one and I said, oh yeah, I'm working on this history of nutrition labeling. And he looked at me and he said, oh yeah, um, I, I, I'm the reason why there's that. And I remember thinking, you know, really, you know, what was that? And apparently he was at the food and drug administration in the 1970s and, and that was a turning point in the book when they introduced nutrition labeling. So in that sense, what he said was true. And he then said, you should come down to my law firm in DC he, he works at um, Covington and Burling, which is a big law firm. Um, we have lots of archives and you could use those. And it turned out, I, I spoke with the FDA historian at the time and she was like, oh yeah, their archives might be bigger than ours for this kind of stuff. And they just had lots of materials about sort of how the firm handled health claims, um, you know, the problem of nutrition labeling and advertising and, um, so that was helped me get kind of the, the backstory was looking at those private archives.
0: Yeah. Which is, it's an incredible story and a fantastic opportunity for a historian to have access to such incredible materials. Um, also, I just wanted to say on a personal note, it, you know, your, your story about the sort of litigious uh, American uh, uh, you know, image that we have uh, reminded me of when I started, when I presented some uh, preliminary research that I was doing about uh, food education for children uh, in Japan, uh, in Paris, to a French audience who generally seemed shocked and horrified that you would uh, treat food uh, as nutrition um, and not in this sort of holistic way. Um, and I was thinking that, you know, it's interesting that the Japan has a, a very sort of similar um, for, for, you know, some historical reasons, the sort of scientific, as you put it, you know, approach um, to food and this sort of food labeling and uh, breaking everything down into, you know, macronutrients and all that sort of stuff um, is something that I recognized. And I, and I, I uh, w- was one of the things that interested me um, in getting into the book. Is thinking about how that, as a commu- sort of communication strategy, uh, emerges in this long history of the FDA that you're telling uh, in the book, um, and you know you- you're talking about the ways that this reflects broader changes in the political economy uh, of food in the U.S. for roughly the past century or so, um, and along the way you're taking on a lot of questions about expertise and public trust, um, about the cr- the dawn of the information age and informationism. Um, In order to sort of get at some of those issues, I want to ask you to unpack a passage, uh, which comes from the book that I think uh, will help the audience to get into that. So you write, the 1990s nutrition facts panel was intended to be an extended cognition aid for the distributed consumer. More recently, policymakers have embraced choice architecture and built food policy around a rationally irrational consumer who acts on emotions and irrational behaviors, but in predictable ways. These nudge policies are justified by substituting a libertarian paternalism that protects individual choice and lifestyles for the much maligned old-fashioned liberal paternalism. So in other words, I I think what you're saying here is that since the 90s, we're kind of living in that world of the book nudge, the the choice architecture and liberal paternalism. Um, But that this is really just something from the the 90s and that there's a long history behind that. So I wonder if you could maybe unpack a little bit of that to get us started.
1: Yeah, no. um, So first of all, this this passage has a lot packed into it. um, And I try really hard through most of the book to avoid compressing so many Um, sort of high-powered words, and this is a passage where I I don't succeed at that. But it is true that it it does speak to one of the big questions at the center of this history of food labeling policy, which is how much can experts or the people designing these labels trust the consumer to know what to do with the information that's put on the label? And so one of the things I do in this book is I talk about how the way the experts imagine these consumers has changed over time. And... In the early years of the story, which really starts in the 1930s, um, the people working in the, the agency, the sort of predecessor of the Food and Drug Administration, um, what they referred to as the ordinary consumer. The, the idea was they're de- developing consumer protection policies um, related to the ordinary consumer. And they had a legal concepts like the reasonable expectation test that start to get developed in a lot of... Um, legal literature and in court cases. And there were different ideas about that. Who was the ordinary consumer for which product? So, um, they understood that people tend to be more credulous. They talked about the credulous consumer for health products and diet products. And so they needed to make more of an effort for those products, um, to make sure that the kinds of claims in advertising around health products were, um, policed and and, and and such. But for the ordinary consumer, they felt like the goal with food was, you know, you need to make it self-evident and fit with what the ordinary consumer expected it to be. Um, and some of that was focused on the rational choices that an ordinary consumer might make about price or quality. But you also have this idea that there might be hidden desires Um, A lot of marketers, especially after World War II, are focused on the kind of like, what are the hidden motivations for the consumers? Um, But for the FDA, this meant that the goal was you need to make a kind of simple food system and then separate out the sort of drug and health products from that where where you need to be more careful. As the story moves forward, um, they start focusing more on the idea that there are active consumers out there who are seeking information and I talk about the informed consumer as the kind of imagined model they have. Um, Again, I'm not talking about what consumers are doing and saying in the book so much as how experts are imagining them and and then why they use that to justify their new policies. So by the time you get to the 1990s, where I'm talking about in this passage, the distributed consumer, the irrationally rational consumer, um, you have a lot of different ideas of how consumers work, but it's no longer the idea that there's sort of the single person with simple needs and the label is going to solve that. Um, the distributed consumer, uh, I get this from studies in science and technology studies looking at um, how we use computers, is the idea that when you're flipping through different windows, you might have, be completely different in how you're behaving as a user on your browser, right? Uh, and in a way, the FDA has a similar idea of the 1980s 1990s shopper, right? When you're a mom, you're in one mode. Um, when you're thinking about your own needs, you're in a different mode. And um, When you're buying the snack product, you're looking at a product one way. When you're buying components of a meal, you're looking at it differently. And so the, suddenly, they're making this kind of food label with this idea of this distributed consumer. Again, there are these kind of cycles in how experts think about the uh, consumer that go from the kind of focus on a rational user to this irrational user. And by the 2000s, you have uh, behavioral economists, um, You have uh, policymakers, uh, uh, Thaler and Sunstein have a book out called Nudge, um, who start to say that, hey, consumers do all kinds of crazy irrational things with the food label, um, but they do it in a really predictable way. And so they use this phrase, um, rationally irrational consumers, and they use that to justify the idea that, hey, it's it's not just about equipping the consumer to make rational decisions. Actually, they're delegating to us the expert. Um, and what we need to do is steer them in ways that recognizes that they're not, they don't have a completely rational view of what's going on, but steer them in ways that then fit with our, you know, policy making, And this is the nudge model that the book kind of ends on in the conclusion saying this is the kind of current model that you see. Um, so for me, it's not so much that I'm adopting any of these particular models, what I'm saying is that there's this kind of interesting evolution. Um, and a lot of conflicts among experts about who is the consumer um, when we're designing these labels.
0: Yeah, and so this is a uh, a history, a story that begins, as you said, in the 1930s, uh, and that's uh, very much the topic of chapter one about the sort of age of standards, as you put it. Um, and you know, I think you've you've addressed some of the uh, most important uh, ideas in there um, already. And I just so maybe it makes sense to to really push us into the the post war, which uh, is the era of information uh, the 1960s, which is very much uh, more the, the subject of Chapter Two, um, where going into the 60s, you know, the American diet is rapidly changing, uh, industrializing, and in this context of change and innovation, uh, the FDA and the consumers that it served are sort of swimming upstream against all of this scientized advertising, uh, which you've you know talked a little bit about. Um, and in response to that, the FDA, uh, as you put it emphasized the need for expert gatekeepers to shore up professional standards, right? So we're still sort of in this standards model to some extent um, for drugs, uh, et cetera. Uh, And in, in chapter two, you show how the agency is attempting to navigate its role as the regulator and the arbiter of scientific truth in this new age um, of, you know, diet foods and fats and so on and so forth, and what Harvey Levenstein dubbed ne- negative nutrition. Um, so can you tell us about this era? Because I think in some ways, you know, we talked about, uh, you-, you mentioned the, the 70s being that-, that real turning point for the agency, and it seems to me that the 60s is a really important run-up to that, where the challenges uh, that are going to cause that revolution are mounting up.
1: Well, yeah, one thing I hope readers today will get excited about in this book is that they're going to see this period in the 60s. And a lot of things that are going to look really familiar, um, these kind of health claim advertisements about food, um, you know, regulators sort of, you know, shaking their heads saying, What do we do about this companies being slick and taking advantage of it? But then there's a lot of things they aren't going to recognize. Um, this is a period where people haven't yet fully adopted this emerging model that food has this kind of risk-based diet concern, um, and this is this, and I'll talk about this in a second. But this is good, the beginning of a new kind of risk-based model about preventive health, um, where diet and food are really important to that. And so you have, um, you know, experts and, and medical professionals saying well, this is you know problematic. We need to keep this to patients in a way that will look very different. Uh, my kind of the, to show how far we've come on this um, the, in the 1990s there was this big change in the United States uh, where you have direct-to-consumer advertising on prescription drugs. Um, And we're one of the few countries in the world that has this. So if you're anywhere else in the world um, and you come to the United States and you see an advertisement on a prescription drug, it's just a very weird thing to watch. Um, And we're now used to this. So when I speak in the United States about this, I have to really kind of denaturalize that um, because it's sort of the extreme opposite end of what i'm describing in this in chapter two of what's going on with food Um, so first of all i just want to say this is very much a book about the united states but a lot of it um that's i think informed by the fact that i've lived abroad a lot and so i don't take for granted this kind of american approach um towards food and health because of that time living in other countries Um, one of the important ways the FDA attempts to regulate markets in the 1960s is by shoring up a clear division between food and drug products. And what they de- they de- decide is, okay, for food products and the ordinary consumer, we're not going to allow health claims because that's just scaring them. And this is a, a response to a long history, along with the m- medical association of trying to police nutrition quackery and medical quackery where you have these non-licensed doctors selling all kinds of things. And so they're saying, we're not gonna allow this, Um, but for drugs, obviously we will, but then because we're concerned about the risk, we'll really emphasize the rules about prescription drugs. And there will be a clear expert gatekeeper, the doctor and the pharmacist Um, as well as the FDA in terms of pre-market approval to make sure that these things are understood and are safe and are worth it in the special case of patients. Okay. So this is the kind of concept the FDA has. Falls apart with diet food products. And they have a kind of middle category um, of special dietary foods where um, since the twenties with insulin, you have diabetics um, who need sugar-free foods. They're now living longer lives and they need sugar for food. So the FDA understands this. So it assumes that doctors and these diabetic patients will understand that artificially sweetened foods are necessary to them, even though the FDA is concerned about the risks of these artificial sweeteners and these additives. But companies are playing with this. They're saying, hey, you know, there are people who are interested in artificially sweetened foods for lots of reasons beyond just being sick. Um, clearly, vanity dieting being a big one. Um, The FDA is really unhappy about that and for like a decade resists efforts by advertisers to kind of sell sort of direct to consumer advertising for this food, saying, look at this kind of opportunity, calorie free foods. Um, So in a way, there's this kind of cat and mouse game in the 1960s with advertisers and the FDA on this. I will say that it's easy to read this as a story where industry is under undermining good faith regulation Um, but it's not that simple and where this is really clear is with the diet heart thesis in the 1950s and 60s some researchers start to really push the idea that um, the rising rates of heart disease are partly because we have this you know affluent diet um you know fatty foods eating too much and we need to start changing our traditional ideas about food and, and part of that is saying, if we have low fat foods, a lot of the animal fat foods that used to be highly valued, you know, meats and, and dairy products, now they're saying maybe we need to find alternatives. Um, and so there's this kind of going undergoing debate. Initially, the FDA looks at this as like another fad diet and, and says, hey, doctors might have this conversation with their patients about this, but we don't want this out in the public. But of course, these, these, these uh, sort of progressive doctors with this diet heart thesis are saying, Hey, this is different. We need to start pushing preventive health concerns, right? Even healthy people today in the future might be sick if they don't make changes to their diet today. So this is not just about doctors and patients now. And so there's this real debate um, that the FDA eventually changes its policy on and says, okay, actually, maybe we do need to start accepting certain kinds of health information out there for even healthy consumers. So you have a wide variety of products. For some of them, the FDA is really unhappy. Artificial sweeteners is a kind of clear in the 1960s. They have lots of concerns about, are these kind of um, Clearly fine for patients who are concerned about more immediate health concerns, but maybe not good for widespread use. But then they have things like um, vegetable fat margarines where, you know, they're kind of behind the medical profession who's saying, hey, you know, olive oil, this is good. Um, these sort of vegetable oils uh, and products might be good for people who are concerned about heart disease risk. Um and it leads to two big problems. Uh, one of them is they've been penalizing companies that make non-standard foods with this label imitation. And food industry is frustrated because it's trying to create lots of new products including low-fat foods, and those low-fat foods are starting to be called imitation foods. And so you have these political cartoons where um, the food processing industry is complaining that one day they'll have to market the superior imitation margarine right, and get people to think that imitation is actually better than the real thing. And the other are the special dietary foods. So they're trying to establish rules about all, a wide variety of markets, especially vitamin-enriched foods and supplements, uh, low-cal foods, and low-fat foods sort of clear rules about this um but they're getting pushback from all these different industries because th- they feel like they're being held back by the the food standard system
0: yeah I, and so the rest of the book is going to treat the the 70s to the present and sort of the response to this you know crisis moment that that's cropping up in the 60s but I did want to say I mean I think I think your point is very well taken that um a great deal of the uh, material that you're treating in the book, uh, in the context of the 1960s, um, you know, the it, it, we 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 have the echoes the, uh, the 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 sort of the sense of repetition now. You know, in the age of Ozempic on the one hand, and freakouts about you know is aspartame going to cause cancer? Actually, after all these years, maybe maybe it's actually a carcinogen. Uh, Now there's, you know, the anti-seed oil people and, you know, all these same questions. But, and this is, I think, the sort of interesting turn that you make in chapters three and four um, in a very different sort of regulatory and ideological kind of um, environment. And so since the 1970s, you know, FDA food policy, as you show, has been more about Labeling than about regulation in a sort of direct sense, right? And this is, you know, as you describe it, it's it's kind of a neoliberal turn, which, um, to use your words, uh, is moving the responsibility for food for food safety onto individuals. Um, and so, chapters three and four are looking at this point of crisis for the FDA, uh, where you know around the turn of the nineteen seventies and how the agency deals with that uh, and. Enters a you know a period with a new vision uh, of the market, which centers on the informed consumer that you've that you've mentioned. So you write that this is a shift which parallels uh, two modes of governance that are the focus of this book: standards of identity and informative product labels. So, so what does that mean, and for especially for the politics uh, surrounding the FDA, and what are then the downstream effects that it has on consumers?
1: Yeah, yeah great question. So. Um... So, ch- chapter three is kind of a weird chapter in the book. It stands apart um, because, up in the first two chapters of the book, all of these debates may be about the consumer and they may be about the public and dieting, but the the, the public is really not there. Um, in a way, it's really lawyers and um, physicians and regulators at the FDA um, who are having these kind of you know backstage conversations about the american um food consumer markets and in chapter three that changes uh, because there are a, a series of sort of public relations crises that the fda gets pulled into um, the biggest one is that um, suddenly americans become aware that Uh, or many Americans who were unaware become aware that there is a serious problem of hunger in America. Um, The the kind of narrative in in mainstream America of the 1960s is that this is a moment of affluence. Um, You know, we're in the Cold War and America is sort of projecting that capitalism is working. Um, You have famous moments of this with like the kitchen debates with uh, Nixon and Khrushchev where Nixon is sort of saying, look at our kitchen, look at our supermarkets. This is showing that capitalism is working. And then suddenly in 1968, uh, in the background, you have the civil rights movement arguing that this is not working for all Americans. Um, and um, Marion Wright, a civil rights activist, uh, says to some senators, hey, we have serious problems of hungers. Come with me down to Mississippi and I'll show you. And this visit leads to an awareness among politicians, and then there is a, a documentary that brings it into the televisions of most Americans, that actually there are serious p- hunger and a kind of people left behind in this affluence narrative. Um, so that uh, creates a kind of public discussion about what do we do about hunger and nutrition in America? Um, when Nixon wins, one of the first things that he does is this is, we're gonna have a White House conference on food, nutrition, and health. Um, and he brings in uh, this prominent, prominent nutritionist, John Meyer a um, French-born, uh, french, french born, but uh, at Harvard. Um, and you start to get this effort to kind of reframe among the Nixon administration, let's reframe this hunger story in a way that fits with their agenda. Um, but then you have also this sort of growing hunger lobby, uh, a group of activists who are like seeing hunger as a way of getting Americans to care about the civil rights movement, basically saying it's not just about um, you know urban blacks and urban decay, hunger cuts across a wide range of Americans, right? Including, um, you know, you know, poor rural South um, and such. So hunger becomes this big issue. Meanwhile, the FDA, and this is where the food labeling story comes in. Meanwhile, the FDA is holding, trying to hold a series of hearings to update its standards on special dietary foods. Um, and it's gotten, the food industry and, and the um, pharmaceutical industry are angry with it because it's insisting on a label that was said, vitamins and minerals are supplied in abundant amounts by commonly available foods. Except for persons with special medical needs, there is no scientific basis for recommending routine use of dietary supplements. So this label, very quickly, uh, as these hearings are going on, you have you know doctors being called in to testify on behalf of the FDA saying America has got an abundant supply of, of nutrition. Um, But then you have people critical of this coming and saying, Hey, we have a hunger in America scandal going on right now. Um, There are people who are severely malnourished. Don't you look kind of foolish to be making this statement? And so suddenly the FDA's efforts to change the standards for special dietary foods, that becomes a big political liability. Um, At the white house conference conference, you also have a, an interesting uh, story, just an interesting story to tell where the many of the sort of prominent nutrition nutrition experts are being called in and and are talking about what could be done um, over the course of the conference. And that in that kind of formal part of the conference, a clear message, you start to see a shift where it's saying, well, part of the problem is that we need to think about. Um, and this fits with the Nixon administration's interest in characterizing this as a problem of education and personal responsibility. Um, you also see a lot of interest in new diet foods and a clear consensus across the board of everyone saying, we need to fix the the food label because you know food labelings aren't just the standard system is not working with all of these problems. Um, but what makes it really interesting is that the hunger lobby meanwhile has kind of ransacked and captured the media by lots of colorful demonstration around the conference. Um, and also they're really emphasizing that the experts are out of touch with, the concerns that they're raising um, you know social justice concerns um, poverty concerns and so one of the things i like in this chapter is it's a kind of moment of reckoning between expert communities um and this broader public concern um the kind of tragic outcome of the, the conference is that um in the terms of food labeling everyone's clearly unhappy with the food label our standard system they're clearly interested in the food label um but there's a kind of shifting away from the focus on poverty as the root of hunger, and instead on um, food policy. Um, food policy in terms of which which foods we should be getting them. People to think about how can we improve education, and so that's the kind of beginning of chapter four, which I think of like I said in the 1970s is really the turning point in FDA policy. And so chapter four is focused on that and is, is the heart of the book in this. Um so in chapter four, the FDA. 1970s and especially 1973, a new group of people at the FDA come in, they say we need to change our approach, and they introduce um, what they call voluntary nutrition labeling. And what they say is okay, we have no legislative authority to require new food labels, but if you want to do non standard foods, foods that don't have a kind of fit standard or are different than the standards we've been creating and requiring, um, will allow that without putting imitation on it if you then carry this nutrition information panel. And it's so kind of a compromise um, where they're saying you can do this. Um, but it's not just a compromise. The FDA is actually in a way embracing a kind of market approach to handling all these new diet things. It, it publishes at the same time a standard for a product they call melarine. Um, And melarine is an ice cream with the dairy, animal fats removed and vegetable fats put in. And they use this as a kind of example of the kinds of foods industry could create and then put on their nutrition label and a health label. Um, And so what they're doing is basically say, all right, you can now create all these new foods and with the nutrition information label, and we're now going to require ingredients labeling on all foods too, um, consumers can look at the label and make the decision for themselves. Are they interested in this new diet heart thesis and therefore they can do that um, or not, in which case they can continue to you know, be that ordinary consumer that we used to worry about. Um, but it's not us telling you what to do. And so that's the kind of key, that's what I characterize as sort of the neoliberal approach um, or a market turn. It's this idea that we're not gonna tell you what to eat, but we're gonna make sure you have all the information you need so you can make that decision yourself. And we've had, it's, that was 1973. And so we've had 50 years of nutrition labeling um, as, you know, this in 2023. Um, and of course, in some ways, this looks like a kind of expansion of FDA powers um, because it's creating these rules with no legislative uh, backing. It's doing this in an environment in the 1970s that's very anti-government. Um, And anti-government from both sides, not just the kind of right-wing attack that's trying to say, keep the government out of businesses. Um, You have that. There's sort of this wonderful 1968 quote of Ronald Reagan as a California governor (laughs) saying, keep your sticky labels off my my supplements, um, where he's sort of very much saying, keep the government out of our foods. But you also have on the left um, a kind of uh, complaint about uh, sort of backward oppressive government institutions. Um, The two best examples I like of this, one is not specific to food labeling, but it's just a powerful example of how food labeling is seen to be the solution. Um, The FDA is exploring patient package inserts. So again, in theory, when you're given a drug from your doctor for prescription, the doctor is supposed to be the one making the risk calculation. But for drugs like birth control, they're getting attacked because it's being discovered that there are risks that women take with birth control that the FDA hadn't really considered. Um, And also feminists are arguing that doctors who are usually male don't understand women's needs. They don't understand the calculation about reproductive health. And so the FDA, the second product the FDA explores a patient package insert with, and the one that was the most important one for them is by putting it in the birth control pill. That again, the women now can read through this patient package insert all the information they need about the possible risks. They're not dependent on the doctor for that. Um, So this is also happening with foods. You have uh, Michael Jacobson publishes a book called Eater's Digest where it's just a long diatribe about how the FDA isn't, the system is not meeting consumer interests. And he uses this phrase silent labels to talk about how a standard food doesn't have any health information or ingredient information. Um, And so in a way the FDA turning to the food label works because uh, the idea that now in the market and consumers themselves, um, they can take down those decisions on themselves instead of being controlled in this kind of command and control form of the food standard system from before. And it's because both the left and the right are tired of government in this period.
0: Yeah, I think this is uh, one of the really interesting insights of the book is thinking about the ways that uh, a particular model of expertise is breaking down and using the FDA uh, and food labeling uh, and drug labeling as a, as a sort of way to tell that story. Uh, and that's you know a big part of the story that gets us into the 1990s, which is the uh, subject of the last two chapters. Uh, which deal with the nutrition facts panel uh, and the rejection of GMO labeling, uh, the recognition of organic foods, et cetera. Uh, this is the era that you describe um, as the era of the FDA as an information broker rather than as a watchdog or as an agent. So in other words, this transformation that, that, that we've been talking about is sort of complete, right? Where now the job is um, to provide information rather than to promote public health. Uh, it, it Kind of, it sort of feels to me like like one of those end user licensing agreements that's you know three thousand pages long and you just click yes at the bottom because it's too much information, right? It, it, I think we're we're sort of entering that phase of of the relationship here, um, and this reflects and probably encourages changing conceptions of food and health. Um, food is, as you put it, a, a, becomes a product with interchangeable parts, emphasizing knowledge, uh, novelty and transcendental properties. Which I thought, by the way, is a lovely uh, way to put it. Um, and health was redefined uh, using um, in, in ways that then, you know, place the responsibility for risk determination on consumers more firmly even than before. Um, and this is a model that you call informationism. Um, and, and I guess at some level, it, you know, it occurs to me that uh, the, the, the narrative of the whole book is... Uh, in some ways, leading to right this rise of informationism um, as the current model that we are saddled with. Uh, if, if you'll if you'll allow me to editorialize a little bit, um, is that is that a fair reading of of the of the book? And can you tell us a little bit about uh, chapters five and six along with that?
1: Yes. No. I, I I definitely see us as being still in this age of information as the approach the FDA takes. Um, although we may be transitioning out of it, um, so that's hard to say but um, so when I talk about the 1990s and and I have two chapters on this and I'll explain why in a second, but the the nutrition facts label really is the kind of triumphant moment of both the idea that information labeling is the way we should solve policy problems. In a way, the nutrition facts label is the FDA's attempt, attempt to standardize information in the market. And this is kind of ironic because of course before they were standardizing foods. Now instead they're focusing on the the information panel, and not on the foods themselves. Um, and what happens in the 1990s is that, um, fr- first of all, they have a legislative authority now. Congress passes the Nutrition Labeling and Education Act, and that's important to why the FDA is able to create the nutrition facts label. They require it on all foods, and this creates a lot of interesting challenges um, because, and and food companies push back. Uh, you have Coca-Cola saying, "No one's drinking a Coke." to be healthy? Why do we have to have this label on there? Or does it make sense to have the label on, um, you know, something like water where it's zero, 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 right? Um, So you have that kind of response too. Um, But the FDA, the people I spoke with, I interviewed people who worked at the FDA at the time, and they really see themselves as championing this consumer empowerment tool, right? This new label um, is going to empower consumers um, and bring clarity um, to, for consumers to all these questions about diet and health. Um, now I challenge that a bit in part, um, by then having this next chapter where you're looking at other labeling approaches. I, 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 originally I was going to end the book with the nutrition label as kind of the end of the story. Um, and the problem I had with that, there were two problems I have that one is this uh, is you have these other labeling things happening in the 1990s, which, contradict the idea of the FDA as being pro-information. The main one I I, I, I focus on is is the genetically modified food label. So at the same time the FDA is pushing the nutrition facts panel, it is actively saying we are not going to label GMOs. Um, It does this under a doctrine it calls substantial equivalence. It basically says there's no difference between ordinary foods and GMOs, and therefore it doesn't make sense to have labeling. Now, Part of this is because, again, as I was saying that these experts have their ideas of consumers and in the 1980s, you get this concern about risk labels and sort of the irrational anxiety, uh, risk averse society that certain consumers are pushing. And so they're worried that the GM label is going to become a risk label and, and they genuinely don't think it's meaningful. And so therefore they think that this is actually misinformation. Um, and so with a GMO label, what you see is kind of the opposite of the nutrition facts label a kind of effort to eventually accommodate a label with the label that we now have that was introduced in 2016, where it's clear the idea is the opposite. They want to make it harder for you to get a sense of what it means to be GM food um, because they don't want consumers thinking about that. Um, so this is a point where I sort of say labels can also be a tool for obfuscation. They can make, it, they can make information less clear to the consumer. Um, the other thing is, that I don't see this as a triumphant narrative where getting more information on the label results in more empowered consumers. Uh, And so when I, in the conclusion, talk about informationism, what I mean by that is at least two things. Um, One is that we often see information as a kind of direct conduit into the food or into the product, and it's not. It always involves some kind of translation work, by people about the properties of the food and how you represent that on the label as information. And that involves choices by experts about the design and also their kind of biases. So why are we thinking of food as nutrition and not, which is about the final product and these analytic chemists idea of the final product versus how it's produced, right? You know, um, does it matter that it was produced in one kind of farming context versus another? Um, Does it matter that some foods are highly processed? And that may may make them very good for making things that look good on the nutrition facts panel, but it may not be um, the sort of wholesome, unprocessed food that some consumers are seeking that they think are healthy, right? They're not worried about the amount of different vitamins or the amount of um, particular fats. They're worried about how it's made. so that's sort of one problem that information, informationism is sort of hiding. It's sort of treating information like this non problematic direct insight into the product instead of, uh, you know, choices being made by by these experts. The other is that it's treating information as enough of a solution to the problem about people's anxieties about food. Um, if you simply give more information, consumers can simply make more choices. And that this is what consumers want. And I'm in the book, I'm really arguing against this idea of consumer empowerment. Um, labels don't free people from experts. Um, they make them more dependent on experts. Um, so the more of these informative labels you have, the more you depend on experts to make sure that what's on there is correct, um, making decisions about what should or should not go on there. Um, and so it's a, this is a history of more and more experts getting pulled into this sort of package tool. Um, and, and ironically, and this is where I end the book, it, it's not making consumers happier about where their food is coming from. Uh, and here's where I draw on uh, sort of those sociologists who work on trust point out over and over again that trust is not about proof, or at least it's not only about proof. You know, show me that the food is safe. And the label is trying to answer that idea. But actually, a lot of times trust is relational. It's about who I'm talking with. and. So you have this problem that runs throughout the book, where we no longer know who's producing our foods, and so how do you build that kind of trust in who's producing the foods? And giving more and more information isn't answering that question. Um, so kind of the conclusion in the book is um, that we need to focus on improving our, um, you know, civic associations, uh, public institutions. And their efforts to build trust in in our food, not just provide more information.
0: Yeah, again, I mean, I think this is a a really uh, important insight that uh, you're you're examining the way that one earlier system of, or sort of conception of expertise sort of falls apart. And that, again, the one that replaces it doesn't make people happy either. uh, And you still have this problem of you know, who's experts and for whom, and you have the problem of, you know, by, by necessity, I guess, um, only partial information for whole products and whole systems, right? There's no, there's no way to have complete and total information. Uh, and in, in, without that, you're never gonna have the, the kind of satisfaction and trust um, that, that you would need. Uh, so I think that that was one of the things that really sort of struck me coming out of this, that, uh, you know, it it comes down to those two things that you just mentioned, these questions of risk and trust and how we uh, deal with them as a society. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to uh, sort of end on that note, because I think it's a really sort of powerful summation of, of what you're doing in the book uh, and to thank you for uh, taking the time to talk with us about it. Uh, and uh, to hope that we'll, uh, we'll have you back here sometime soon.
1: Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this, and, and I really hope people will be interested in the book and, and, and check it out.
0: Excellent. Thank you.